you know, what's exciting to me is I see more young people running for office and also working on campaigns and mm. making a huge difference. And I think that there is going to come a moment and we're starting to see it where they're just demanding demanding change and absolutely frustrated with the lack of leadership and where this generation generations before us have left them, right? I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Yesterday, the people of Massachusetts elected Attorney General Maura Healey to be our next governor. Governor-elect Healey was a guest on this podcast last year, where she talked about her views on healthcare, racial justice, education, food access, and other key issues. It was an engaging conversation that sheds a lot of light on how she'll approach the job of governor. And so today, we decided to pull it out of the vault. So, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Attorney General and now Governor-elect Maura Healey. Good morning, Attorney General Maura Healey. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, Jill, it's so great to be with you. So, I'm so excited to spend time with you today. You know, I, I learned something new about you. I was reading your bio, and I actually didn't know that you had captained your basketball. I knew you were a basketball player, but I didn't know that you had captained your team at Harvard and then went on to play professionally. I I captained my soccer team in college as well. I definitely think that had a huge impact on how I work in the world. Did, Did it have an impact on you being a great basketball player and being a team leader? Sports has always been important to me. And, you know, it was since I was a little kid and I like soccer too. I played through, through high school and tennis, but basketball ended up being, you know, my passion, but you know, you know, Jill from playing, right. You, you learn so much about what it takes to succeed, right? right. The discipline of practice, the handling of ups and downs in a season or even in a game. I think we both played team sports and I think that's been incredibly important to my life and how I run the office, how you get people to work together. I think sports teaches you too about how to have a goal, you know, and, and a vision and get after it. So yeah, I mean, I continue to this day, as I'm sure you do, to draw so much from sports. I think particularly as women, yeah, right? It's there's no surprise too that women who played college sports have gone on to run companies, sit on boards, get elected to offices in higher percentages, right? Because mm-hmm. I think sports also gives you a certain like confidence and self-esteem that is helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's right. When you look at the world as your playing field and your expectation is, you know, I may win this one, I may lose this one, but long-term I'm aiming at winning the majority of them, that's a very different point of view than being disappointed every time something doesn't quite go your way. And I would imagine over your career, that's, that's been very valuable. I mean, you, as, as a lawyer, you kind of go in, you kind of go into the game all the time, right? You're fighting all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's a different court, but it's still a court and you treat it like, you know, sort of a playing field and, you know, you do your best just like you do in a season to practice, to prepare. Right. And, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Mm -hmm. I think that sports are just an important outlet too, for people. I mean, I think kids getting them out, getting them active, but whatever the sport is, you know, I think particularly in this COVID time, you know, you see the number of people walking or exercising, you know, there's a, there's a healthy reason for that. And it should be fun. 
But on the other end of that, right, sports is a huge platform. And one of the things I've been really into this year is to see the way that particularly like the WNBA, the, mm-hmm. the Women's National Professional Basketball Association has stepped up to be such a force on issues of racial inequality and social justice. And to me, you know, I look at and appreciate and in our, in our Boston sports teams do that as well. Right. But I think that there's room for that. And I appreciate athletes using their platform. I think it's incredibly powerful. I think that, you know, when you serve as a role model to, you know, a group of people in this country or in this state or in this, in the city, it's really important to understand the power that you have and to use that to help, you know, make great things happen. You know, a a really simple example of that is that the Red Sox, as we were rolling out pandemic EBT in this state let Wally take the lead with uh, the first lady and talk to families across the state about why, why they qualify for PEBT, how they can use it, how it's easy to use and how it will help pay for food when kids aren't in school to easily receive food. And so, and I think those sorts of things make people pay attention, right? When, when certain Mm -hmm. messages come from, from leadership like that and from entertainers. And I think, you know, sports athletes are really both. I, I could, we could, we could have a whole conversation actually about professional sports because, uh, <laughs> but, but, but on the topic of racial justice, what's your point of view about where we need to go as, as a city, the city of Boston, the state of Massachusetts, how, how have you played a role in that as attorney general and how should we all be playing a role in that now and in the future as we move hopefully out of this Wait. pandemic? Well, a little bit of my my background, you know, I left private practice. I was a business litigator at at Wilmer Hale and left after nine years to become chief of the civil rights division in the attorney general's office. So civil rights has sort of always been part of, you know, my core and uh, and how I viewed the role, too, of the attorney general's office Mm -hmm. and what it means to be the people's lawyer. Yes, we stand up for consumers and workers and fight, you know, environmental pollution and, and all sorts of things. But civil rights, protecting civil rights, making sure that people are treated equally under the law. It's really fundamental. Right. So here's how I'm seeing it. You know, I think this year has been remarkable. COVID has exposed and exacerbated the racial disparities in health that have existed for a long time, right? right? But I think people saw that more clearly, both in terms of, you know, the disproportionate numbers of Black and Latinx people getting sick with coronavirus, dying of coronavirus, and just their vulnerabilities, right? When you look at higher rates of asthma or diabetes or heart disease or the like. So that's like something that was happening, right, this year. At the same time, we had George Floyd, you know, George Floyd's killing, Breonna Taylor. We could go on and on and on. There's moment of racial reckoning in our country where, you know, we're, we're confronting, I think, in a deeper way what 400 years of systemic racism and its vestiges look like. And to me, this gives us an opportunity to really take it on. And here's what I say as attorney general and what my team in the attorney general's office is doing. Basically, we're applying an equity lens to everything that we do because disparities, racial inequities, are across every element of society, right? Healthcare, transportation, employment, education, criminal justice, the environment, we could go on. 
And I think the way we reduce disparities, combat racial disparities, is to apply an equity lens to everything that we do. So, for example, the other day we took action against an orthodontist who happened to be treating a number of mass health patients, kids, who happen to be predominantly kids of color. And my Medicaid fraud division, which typically doesn't think about civil rights, brought this to me as a civil rights issue to say, look, this is a problem because he's putting braces on kids who don't need them and charging them for it. And it's disproportionately happening to black and Latino kids. We put out reports that mapped bad air quality in environmental justice communities to higher coronavirus rates, right? We issued a report on healthcare disparities and the things that we need to do to reduce that, including more collection of data, greater diversification of the workforce. So I guess, Jill, that's a, that's how we approach it. It's like, you've got to be super intentional and you've got to apply this equity lens to everything that you do. I mean, we just had a book club reading the other day in the office with about 90 people participating. We read How to Be an Mm Anti-Racist, you know, Ibram Kendi's book. We have a lot of discussions, a lot of conversations in our office about about race. And I think you also have to be willing to talk about it. Yeah, you absolutely have to be talking about it or be willing to talk about it. The, The other thing that strikes me about you're saying that's different, you're using data to address the issue right, to, to demonstrate what the problem is, but I would guess also to solve the problem. And what I've noticed in our work over the past year, especially, but, but you know, kind of always, is that there seems to be a lack of data or interest in collect or using the data because there, we have it, right? We have it in systems in the state, we have it in systems in the city, we have it in systems in the public school system, but I feel like we work a lot with feelings and that doesn't motivate people in the same way that just hard data does. When you can say with, with facts, this is the way it is and get people to lean into the notion that the way that it is, is not the way that it could be or should be. I think then you can start to drive momentum comprehensively. I think you make really great points. I agree with you. First on the issue of data, data is really important. And it's why when my office put out this recent report on healthcare disparities, one of the things we called for was we need to collect and examine the data in terms of who's getting access to what healthcare services, what the outcomes are, what the cost is and the like. You know, data should drive and inform policy. It's also, you know, a a conversation we've had with criminal justice reform, you know, looking at the numbers of people who are incarcerated, who are arrested and for what, right? Data has to drive and inform policy. I also think the anecdotal stories are important in that I set up when I got elected a racial justice and equity council. I meet with them regularly. These are stakeholders from around the state, and they actually sit with lawyers and, and staff from different parts of my office. And they and they basically talk at us and, and say, here's what's happening in the community. Here's where we need help, right? And so I think you need both. And to your point about this moment, I think there are a lot of well-intentioned people. You know, this is my sense, Jill. Like, there are a lot of well-intentioned people, but they, they also want to be told the way, shown the way. And, you know, I think that, that's hard. And sometimes you're going to have awkward conversations. You're going to step in it. I think it's the willingness to have the conversation, the willingness to get, you know, if you're a white person to read a lot, to get educated, to talk to friends and colleagues of color. And 
do the best you can with it. I think it is leadership though. And, you know, I've been talking pretty boldly about what needs to happen to really make a difference on addressing the inequities in our society, combating hate and discrimination. We've got a serious issue with the rise of white supremacism. We've got to implement the police reform. And we just need at all levels this commitment. We have centuries, right, of marginalization that we're dealing with. It will take time. But, you know, I hear from the business community commitment. I hear it from other governmental actors and leaders. I hear it from, you know, the young people, Jill. The young people are demanding change. And that's a really good thing. And and we have to serve that up and, and follow them, too. Yeah, actually, let's drill into this. I wanted to say, too, I agree with you on storytelling, right? We, I mean, I think humans are distinguished by our ability to tell stories and understand stories. And I absolutely think that those are the things that motivate us. And so I do agree that, you know, those, those are critically important. Mm-hmm. And I think they are made more powerful by facts. And I, and I think that you use both. Definitely. Um, but just talk about kids, because I, I really do believe that students and kids are about to have a huge moment in this country. You know, the way that I think about it is I sort of feel like kids should stage a giant lawsuit against adults for using this past year to ramp up infighting rather than work together to protect the next generation. And, and I think we're about to see massive backlash. You know, we've basically not given most kids in this country a proper education for a year, all because adults couldn't decide how to do that. And we're so fearful of this new paradigm that we were pushed into rather dramatically. I'm kind of joking about the giant lawsuit, but you know, you're the people's lawyer. How should students be using what I think is gonna be an incredible amount of power in this next year to help them serve themselves? Because I feel like we've done a lot to, to harm them over the past year. We haven't served them food. We haven't taken care of their mental health. We haven't provided them great academic infrastructure. I, what do you think? Uh, I agree. And we have got a lot to make up for, right? I mean, you think about the effect on mental health, social, emotional well-being, physical well-being, you know, when you right. get to things like nutrition and exercise and just the strain, you know, I worry about, unreported cases of domestic violence or child abuse within a home. There's a lot of work, Jill. I agree. And we have got to prioritize in a way that we haven't to date, the health and well-being of our kids. How are we going to make this year up to them? I think zooming out for a minute too, you know, during my time, the last seven years as attorney general, I have so loved my time with young people, right? I mean, whether it's the activists who are fighting gun violence here in the city of Boston or Massachusetts or Emma Gonzalez and the kids from Parkland who I met with leading marches, not just in Washington, but in communities here Mm. in Massachusetts, so powerful. You think about environmentalists, right? I mean, I know you know many of them, these young kids, climate, understandably, is everything, right? You know, it's not just that Greta Thunberg though she's inspiring, it's kids here in Massachusetts speaking out and they've made a huge difference. I think that, you know, what's exciting to me is I see more young people running for office and also working on campaigns and Mm -hmm. making a huge difference. And I think that there is going to come a moment and we're starting to see it where they're just demanding, demanding change and absolutely frustrated with the lack of leadership and where 
this generation, generations before us have left them, right? Saddled with student debt, $1.7 trillion and growing, a desperately distressing situation in terms of the health of our planet, right? Wealth inequality in this country, racial uh, division that just has been a year of, of so much. And, and a year too, where we've got to get back to facts and get rid of the disinformation, the lies that are out there that are eroding and corrosive to a democratic ideal. So I'm putting faith in our kids. What I think we need to do here locally is just what you say. You know, whatever tools we need to give these kids, therapy, (laughs) food, exercise, extra courses, mentoring, we need to do that. And I would have liked to have seen more efforts to prioritize getting kids physically in school a lot sooner, mm-hmm. a lot sooner, because I think kids and their parents really suffered this year as a result. Yeah, I think so too. How do you think about in terms of the power of this younger generation, they are the most adept yet at using social media platforms and the internet to organize and to communicate. These tools are in the hands of our kids and they've been in the hands of our kids, you know, sometimes now since birth. I just wonder how you think about that and how do you, how you think, even how you think about the ways in which we need to moderate that and the use of technology. I mean, this really is at this point a fourth dimension and younger people, it, I don't think, well, there's studies that show they don't really differentiate between the three-dimensional world that they live in and the three-dimensional world that is online that they participate in. And, and so what sorts of things do we need to think about in terms of, I don't know, regulations or rules as that becomes and has already become, you know, another playing field? I think it's like the topic, you know, I think it's like, this is so, so significant and, you know, technology, social media, now AI, I mean, it has such, it's a presence in every single aspect of our life, like not just banking, but how we access healthcare, how we shop, I mean, how we get our news and how we interact with one another. And I'm lucky I'm here in Massachusetts. It's, you know, among the tech capitals of the world in the Mm -hmm. United States. And there's so much power in that, right? I mean, technology has done so much good, and yes, with that, as with anything else, comes these externalities that you got to figure out how to deal with. I get really concerned about the addictive nature of some of the some of the games and social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say that I've got two nieces and a nephew, and there's a lot of screen time. And again, I think that it's been valuable this year because it's been a way for them to like interact with friends, play games on Roblox or whatever. It's also, you can tell when you try to take their devices away, you know, they have the meltdown. So like, I think we need to really look at the addictive nature of some of this and how to moderate that within our kids, right? The other thing is, I do think that we need real help from the social media platforms. And as attorney general, Mm -hmm. I have a letter and advocacy joined by other AGs to the major platforms calling on them to address issues of threats of violence and the perpetuation of hate that results in illegal, problematic, unlawful conduct online, and also misinformation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen that through the elections, of course. We've also seen that that has a seriously corrosive effect. And Mm -hmm. so those would be the two things, like dealing with the addictive 
nature of, of this for our young people? How do we moderate that? And two, how do we deal with platforms and getting them into this we really need to write this, Jill. I mean, having lived through a ton of litigation around election protection over the last year around the country, this is like a serious problem. I mean, the threats to officials online, the doxing that goes on, and then just the dissemination of lies. It's like, it's so, it's so bad. So those are some thoughts, but again, like we're lucky we sit the tech capital of the world. So, you know, how can we work together on these things? Do you feel the social media companies are coming along in that? You know, look, this is a space where I understand people don't want to be regulated. I think there's also a recognition that, wait a minute, what's happened here? I'll I'll give you an example. You know, several weeks ago, just uh, around the time of the insurrection of the Capitol, we noticed that on Facebook, there were groups, individuals organizing for the rally and things related to the rally and the insurrection. And alongside those posts on Facebook were Facebook ads for military gear or paramilitary gear, right? And so we called on Facebook and said, take that down, okay? Do not allow your site to be used and do not use your site and all your algorithms to figure out a way to help insurrectionists buy paramilitary gear so they can go shoot up people at the Capitol. So they did, they took that down, but they need to do more. They need to do more and they have the ability to do more. I mean, we've called on them to help deal with issues of algorithmic discrimination. And I really welcome this. I know, you know, anytime government gets involved, passing a law, regulating, that can do more harm than good sometimes. But it's like, if you're not going to do it, we, we can't leave it to them to self-regulate at this point. <laughs> well, right. um, well, I think I think the misnomer is that you know, if we call it social media, it feels like a one-dimensional thing. But, you know, what everyone uh-huh. in technology knows is that this is very three-dimensional and it's faster and it can be more invasive than anything that can be coordinated in the real world. And I think that's what we're seeing play out here, right? Is is the yeah. down, I mean, right, there's, there's good stuff and bad stuff happening every day in the real tangible three-dimensional world. And, and if you can enable that to be faster and more pervasive in a electronic world, that can get super complicated. And, and I feel like we need to change the way that consumers and residents of this con- country look at that space, right? That it needs to be governed because it, it's just an extension of this slower moving real world that we have. Great point. Yeah. And I think you just made something that made a comment that made me think about the education that we need to do. I mean, You're right. It's like, we do a lot of straight up consumer stuff. Like you can't lie. If you're a business, you can't lie and say that, you know, you're selling X and then it turns out it's Y and it doesn't work. And, you know, you've charged somebody for it. It's like, people need to understand, like the internet is almost like, it's like a public good on some level out there. I know it's, you know, private, but it's so pervasive that, you know, these, these rules have sort of got to catch up. And the other thing is on privacy, you know, I don't know about your kids, but it's like, I feel like people don't care as much about privacy, or at least they don't really have a clue about how their information online, how their data is going to be aggregated, monetized, shared. I think that we need to do more sort of like education to people about that so that they understand. And you're right. I mean, look at this year, 
telehealth, you know, mm-hmm. look at what we can do right. online, right. you know, whether it's FaceTime, Zoom, Teams, like amazing, right? I mean, where would we be without some of the technology that we have? And those are just some basic examples. So how do you embrace the good, incorporate the good and get rid of stuff that's really destructive and harmful to kids or, you know, society? And these are hard questions. They're, they're hard questions or big questions. And we're talking about doing them in a, in a dimension that we don't really totally understand because it was introduced to us so quickly. Right. And, mm-hmm. and they're very creative, smart people who are at play all over it, making it much better for the good and much worse, I think, for the not so good. Switching gears a little bit, I'm thinking about the work that you've done over the past year during the pandemic and through the lens that we look at things day to day. This is this has been a really tough year of watching more and more people fall into deeply vulnerable situations as they've lost their jobs, as they have been afflicted by COVID-19, as they've watched people around them die. And I think about Maslow's hierarchy and how it feels like people are just keep, can't even get over that first rung in terms of access to food, reliable access to food and to shelter and to safety. And, and all of these things you have worked on as attorney general and your office has worked on. And so I'd love to just talk a little bit about what you feel like has been accomplished so far in those different areas and, and where where do we need to go from here? I mean, we can start with food, which is something we spend a lot of time thinking about. But it, it, it was really interesting to me to watch. We have mostly a, an emergency feeding system and a school meals program, and then a series of supports like SNAP and WIC and HIP that help to feed our most vulnerable. And, and the needs really doubled over the past year. And Unlike in other traumatic situations that are acute, like a hurricane or some other sort of quick moving malady, this is, this is a chronic traumatic situation that we've been in now for over a year. And to watch our, our, big, our biggest infrastructure for feeding people is the food banks and school food. And school got shut down and the food banks got completely maxed out right? in the food boundaries. And, and they were all being afflicted as well by COVID-19 and needing to shut down and reopen. And and so can you talk a little bit about, and I know you did a lot of work with the undocumented population and making Mm -hmm. sure that they had access to food, right? Because they were getting many fewer supports from the federal government. Can you talk a little bit about food from your perspective? Yeah. And Jill, I just want to really thank you for all of your advocacy and leadership around addressing issues of food insecurity. You chair the, the governor's task force on this. It's incredibly important. And I know you've worked so hard um, with your team to get relief to communities like Chelsea, obviously, you know, uh, many communities beyond that. And, and so I just really appreciate your commitment. So what I'm telling you is stuff you already know. I mean, we've got a, we've got a food insecurity crisis in this state that we really should not have. And I think that people didn't realize just how significant that was and how significant it's become over the last year for the reasons you say. And so, you know, we, in the early days, right. I mean, I remember going out to, to Chelsea and La Collaborativa to the food pantry there. What we were trying to do was get one pagers in multiple languages in 
boxes, you know, mm-hmm. of food that people were picking up or diapers so that people could understand, hey, there's an eviction moratorium on right now. You can't be, you can't be threatened or you can't be kicked out. We're trying to get them resources on how to access healthcare or testing at that point. And there was a tremendous fear in the immigrant community because the Trump administration had done so much to denigrate immigrants, to scare them away from services. So that's why we felt we really needed to concentrate on those communities. One thing that I think we experienced in our office, Jill, is we had a lot of people turning to our office for relief who never were hungry before, right? Or who never were food or housing insecure before. But because of COVID, they lost their job or they've lost wages or, you know, somebody's had to stay home and take care of a sick kid or sick parent. Right. And so what do you do in that situation? And, you know, one thing that I learned working with Project Bread, for example, in the Greater Boston Food Bank Mm -hmm. is that organizations I know you work with as well is we got to We actually have a lot of like, whether it's WIC, SNAP, other programs, there are programs available, but we don't have people signed up for them, right? There are a lot of people who are eligible right now in this state who Mm -hmm. just aren't signed up. And so we're trying to, as an office, get more information out to municipal leaders and others about, hey, your residents, as you say, this is like a year-long crisis. This isn't just like a a two-week scenario. And so we've got to build more infrastructure into to how we deliver food because, I mean, we're still going to be dealing with the economic ravages of this for, for months to come. So okay. thank you for working with the schools. Thank God the schools are there, but it shouldn't be on the schools to provide necessarily food, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Oh, and by the way, a weekend, you know, backpack. Well, but well, it is. Yeah. I mean, but did, don't you think that this did point out I think something that we didn't really understand, which is like schools are really a critical piece of infrastructure. We all shut down and said, feed all the kids, find them, feed them, feed them, you know, in perpetuity, use your, the budgets that you had for feeding them in a cafeteria. Now feed them no matter where they are. And by the way, make sure they're okay. Take care of their mental health needs take care of their physical needs, take care of their academic needs without like pushing all kinds of support to them, you know, and and through them. I mean, I I feel like, you know, in hindsight, and a lot of this, I think maybe, but we can only reflect back on and maybe hopefully use it, God forbid, something else happens like this. But for me, that just seems like those are, those are base camps, you know, as, as we go after trying to sort through how we protect people and keep them fed and keep them sheltered and, and keep them safe that we, we really underutilized. We asked a lot of schools and we underutilized them and probably undersupported them during this pandemic. Jill, you are so right. I mean, you point out like schools are the childcare center, right? Mm-hmm. That the daycare center, that the after-school center, you think about you know, we, we didn't we notice that too during this pandemic, the absence. What do you do when there is no after-school programming right. or childcare, and you realize, oh, because yeah, the schools used to do that. And right. Right. I think it's been a huge wake up call for many about the role of schools and the importance of recognizing it's sort of like the holistic, far more holistic role they play in people's lives. When I talk about being scared about the increases in, in child abuse or domestic violence, you know, one of the things that's so troubling is when kids are not in school, 
there are fewer eyes on them, right? right. Counselors, nurses, coaches, others who can sort of see this kid has something going on. Mm -hmm. We need to get in and intervene. We were wondering about this earlier this year with 20 uh, shootings in Boston were up about 29% this year, like you were talking about before domestic violence incidents were up. Do you think that was a result in part of kids just not having enough infrastructure? Definitely. As it, it also ties to kids dropping out, right? I mean, right. the dropout rate is really alarming. Some of it has to do with technology, right? And, you know, what is or isn't available maybe in the home, although I think Boston, and actually you've been a real part of this in getting technology there, but it's one thing to have technology there. It's another thing to be there alone. <laughs> if you've got a parent who's an essential worker and a single parent, what do you do? There was a report in the Globe last week about, you know, a student, a story, but, but it's it's a story that I think tells a, a lot of kids stories where the student was having problems with connectivity because she was in the back of the Uber car that her mom drives, right? In order, like, so like, this heartbreaking. Is, yeah, yeah. This is all these things that we don't think about in terms of how do we support our kids, uh, especially you know, when we're yeah. in some sort of crisis. It, also, in, in terms of supporting students, you, you're part of a group of state attorney generals that are pushing President Biden, they're encouraging him to cancel up to $50,000 of student debt for individual. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm curious why this is coming out of AG's offices. Well, you know, student loan debt is now, I think it's $1.7 trillion and growing. And mm -hmm. it's it's such an issue, Jill, that six years ago, I actually set up in my office a student loan assistance unit, first of its kind in the country. The reason we did that is we were getting so many calls from borrowers and families who were in default or facing default. Some had been the victim of predatory lending practices. Mm -hmm. Some had been had fallen prey to some of these for-profit schools that basically said, hey, you know, come see us. We're going to give you a great uh, degree and you're going to get a kick-ass job and just sign the dotted line and don't worry. And yeah, it costs tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds, whatever, but mm. you know, it'd be fun. So some of that was deceptive and we actually took action, right? I remember doing, you know, a case with Kamala Harris actually uh, oh, around some of those activities. So yeah. this is very much an AG thing for okay. a lot of offices because because it's it's about protecting consumers, protecting students against fraud. Mm -hmm. But it's also just like an economic reality that our families are dealing with. One in five federal student loan borrowers are in default right now in this country. Many can't manage their debt due to disability or illness or job loss. You know, we've got people in their 40s, 50s, 60s still with really burdensome student loans. And you know, the fact is they have disproportionately harmed people of color who've needed the access to more of these federal student loans. So what do you do? You got to do something. You've got to do something. And, you know, I support the research that shows that if you just look at the issue of federal student loans and you provide a way to cancel the debt of up to, not $50,000 across the board, but up to $50,000 for borrowers, it is going to help. It's going to help deal with some of the racial disparities, racial you know wealth disparities that are out there. It's going to help boost the economy because if you've got debt, you know you can't buy a car, you can't buy a house. Sometimes you can't even make rent. Right. Um, you're probably not going to want to have kids, right? It's just like a drag on the economy. I understand. You know you don't want a situation where you're giving unnecessary bailouts, right? 
I understand you, a line's got to be drawn somewhere yeah, yeah, of course. and it may not be perfect, but I'm just saying to you, this is a big deal right now. And it's the fastest growing form of debt in the country. And we got to get a handle on it. And I, and I do think that lending practices were, were too loose. Part of this goes to, you know, the work with kids, right? Financial literacy. That's something that our office has really tried to educate, you know, people on. We formed a working group with the Chamber of Commerce, how to educate families on like, what it means when you get a loan package, you know, what a grant means versus a loan and what you're going to be on the hook for. That's great. In time. Yeah, that's great. Do you, and, and how do you think, what, what happens after, I mean, some decision will be made on this and there'll be some positive momentum, I think. And, and then what happens? Like, do, do we, how do we stop what was happening before, what your office was dealing with from happening again? I mean, this, this notion of free college, obviously would never be free. It's, it's the money's coming from somewhere, but how, how do we rethink, how does, how does, how does government play a role in that? Do you think kind of beyond making a decision like this? I mean, I think that you got to think about what kind of education meets the needs for today's economy, right? Mm -hmm. And this gets into diversification of, of the workforce. What are the kinds of skills that people need to acquire through high school, through vocational programs, or through college learning? I mean, I, you know, I was four-year liberal arts degree, right? right? That isn't the ticket for everyone these days. Right. And in fact, for a lot of jobs, it's not the ticket. So I think government can help sort of incent ensuring that we have education that's affordable and accessible that meets the needs of our economy today with obviously a tremendous focus on science and tech, engineering and the like. You know, look, I will. I think we've gone down and we've, we've brought a ton of actions against for-profit schools and shady loan servicers. So, you know, I feel like we've got that covered. If it comes up again, we'll deal with it. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's more about looking forward, what kind of education are we incenting and how are we educating families about, you know, how they can access it. Yeah, that's smart. I, I thought about this a lot, just, you know, looking back over the past year. And, and for me, the thing that I think we need deep investment in is systems because it, it's very hard. I, I think about it just from a food security perspective. We actually don't know exactly where all of the folks who are suffering from food insecurity are. And, and therefore, we cannot be efficient in the way that we make sure that they have what they need. You know, I look at, at that both through the lens of the state and the city and cities across the state, actually, and, and also th through the lens of a philanthropist, right? Like, where do you act? Where, where, where's your help going to be most effective? And, and so for me, if there was like one thing that I would say that as we move through to the other side of this pandemic that we should be looking at investments in, it's, it's systems that we really have better optics into these big problems around food insecurity and shelter and safety and the academic offerings that, that we are providing to students. What do you think we should be focused totally, on? Totally. I totally agree with you. It's like, I mean, I think COVID just exposed all the fragilities in our systems, right? Whether it's on how we deliver food, how we deliver education, how we deliver healthcare. Think about the supply chain, right? And all the fragilities that were exposed when, you know, it turned out we had to 
try to procure a bunch of PPE, right, or, or testing materials. And I think we've got to take a hard look. I mean, I also think about the gig economy, right? Like yeah. it really exposed the, sh- like the shift in the workforce. I mean, and, and what does that mean to have so much of the economy and workforce be in a gig economy? And what do we need to do? I mean, this is my AG hat. Like, yeah. what do we need to do to make sure those workers are protected? So it is like a huge time, I think, of reflection and a need to be really humble, really humble about and really real about like what's working and what wasn't ever really built yeah. to work yeah. and go fix it. I, I, I appreciate that perspective so much like, to look at this pandemic as a gift in a way that at least in the way that it is able to expose things for us so that we can, that, that, that it just becomes so evident where we need to focus our efforts and, and our investments. It certainly wasn't a gift in so many other ways, but I, but I think, you know, in whatever way that we can, we've got to make lemonade out of lemons. So I appreciate that perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. You know, you and I have not spoken that much, but I have to say, I enjoy speaking with you so much. And I appreciate the way that you consider things. I always love reading about the work that you're doing. And so thank you for everything that you do for the state and for our country and for for everyone, really. Thank you, Attorney General. Well, Jill, it's great to talk to you. I always love our conversations and I really appreciate your focus, especially on on the food insecurity and the work you're doing for for our young people. And thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Attorney General Maura Healy. I just loved talking with her and listening to her and knowing that she is at the helm of protecting the people. So excited to see what the future holds for her and for our state. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.